The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 37, verses 1 through 6. Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong. For they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Making your righteousness shine like the dawn, your justice like the noonday. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Alicia. In one of the later Harry Potter books, Harry tricks his friend Ron into thinking his drink has been spiked with liquid luck, a magical potion that brings a person good luck. Upon realizing, or at least thinking he's taken a drink of liquid luck, Ron's confidence and demeanor change drastically. So before taking a drink, his anxiety for the upcoming match was making him nauseous, but after the drink, he's brimming with self-assurance. Filled with confidence, he goes out and has the game in the afternoon of his life. Wouldn't it be nice if confidence came in a bottle? Like just one drink of it and you would be brimming with confidence? Imagine how much a high school boy would pay for a drink of liquid luck before asking a girl to prom. Or a salesperson before the meeting with their biggest client. Or maybe a parent before the conversation they need to have with their teenager. But confidence doesn't come in a bottle. There's no magic potion that assures you the decision you're about to make is right. There's no formula that makes uncertainty vanish and replaces it with confidence. However, Psalm 37 is a psalm of confident living. Not self-confidence, not cocky self-assurance, certainly not arrogance, but confidence in making decisions both big and small. Confidence about the course of one's life and the certainty of one's future. Confidence not as a personality trait or a forced outlook, but the type of quiet assurance that impacts the way a person thinks, the way a person feels, the way a person acts. While there are many lessons to be learned from Psalm 37, what we must not miss is the quiet confidence that comes to a person who knows and follows God. As those who belong to God, our lives should not be characterized by anxiety and nervousness, by ingratitude and frustration, by discontentment or timidity. If we personalize the truths of Psalm 37, we can, like a buoy in the sea, weather the many waves and storms of life without being pulled under. We can live with a quiet confidence that does not come from within us, something that we work up, but that comes from God's grace. Now, this psalm is another acrostic poem in Hebrew, similar to Psalm 35. And what that means for us is that it does not develop the truth sort of one section at a time like a legal argument. The psalmist weaves major themes throughout the psalm. You'll see what I mean as we go along. God does not want his children to be plagued by fear. He doesn't want us plagued by anxiety or uncertainty. He wants us to live with the quiet confidence that affects how we think and how we live and how we talk to others. So let me point out three keys here to confident living. Here's the first one. 
Be honest about the present. Be honest about the present. And if we're being honest, it looks like evil is winning. Right? People who completely reject God, who reject His Word, who reject His will, they seem like they're doing just fine. In fact, they actually seem to be thriving. And we need to be honest about this. We can't close our eyes and just pretend otherwise. This psalm is very honest about what is going on in the world. And the same things that plagued the Middle East 3,000 years ago when the psalm was written plague us today. Look at verse 1. It says, Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong. All around us are evildoers, those who do wrong. Now, let me clarify, because last week we saw how Psalm 36 described us all as wicked people. Right? That all of us have transgressed the boundaries of God's law. All of us have these hearts that have been deformed by sin. But remember also that we saw how the faithful love of God has the power to change us from the inside out. Right? That was the point. The, the faithful love of God can come and it can renew us and reshape our hearts so that we can live and do what's right. And so here in Psalm 37, the, the psalmist, he's contrasting the righteous. That's those who have received the love of God with the wicked or the evildoers, those who have rejected the love of God and therefore have not been changed. So those of us who have been made righteous by the love of God displayed in Jesus Christ, we live in neighborhoods and we live in towns and we live in communities and we're surrounded by those who do what's wrong. And we're tempted to envy them when we see them prospering in spite of their sinful decisions. In fact, sometimes it seems as if it's their sinful decisions which are allowing them to prosper, allowing them to get ahead. It seems that the reason they're doing well is because they've rejected what's true and they're pursuing what's wrong. The psalmist acknowledges in verse 7. He says this, Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way. Well, how does he prosper? It says by the person who carries out evil plans. So people around us, let's be honest, they gain power and they gain influence in very corrupt ways, then when they have power and they have influence, they use that power to hurt and harm other people. And instead of getting into trouble, what it seems is that they just get further ahead. Sometimes when they're evil, they specifically target Christians in a way that feels vicious. Right? It's not simply enough to get their own way. They've got to make anyone who opposes them or even just thinks differently than them, got to, got to make them hurt and make them pay. Look at verse 12. Says the wicked person schemes against the righteous and very descriptive here, gnashes his teeth at him. So these evil plans disproportionately affect the poor and the weak and the helpless, the marginalized. And since Christians have traditionally served among the poor and the weak and the helpless and the marginalized, often Christians are included in these attacks. Verse 14, the wicked have drawn the sword and strung the bow to bring down the poor and needy and to slaughter those whose way is upright. And so this is what we've got to be honest about. Even though people all around us have rejected what God says, even though they do evil, even though they harm those who are trying to do what's right or those who simply have no power, things are working out just fine. In fact, 
it would appear that they're flourishing. Verse 35, I have seen a wicked, violent person, well-rooted, like a flourishing native tree. So when we look around, it seems like Psalm 1, the promise of Psalm 1 has been reversed. Remember Psalm 1? It says, blessing comes on the one who rejects the advice and counsel of the wicked person, but delights himself in the Lord, meditates on his word day and night. It says he will be like a tree planted by a flowing stream who brings forth fruit in the right season, whose leaf never withers. But but the psalmist acknowledges here what we all see, that it often appears as if it makes no difference if someone does right or wrong because lots of wicked, violent people seem to be doing quite well. As Christians, we often feel like the disciples on the night of the crucifixion. We know what God has said, but our eyes tell us a different story. It sure looks like those who commit evil, like those who executed the perfect Son of God are doing just fine. In fact, they're doing better than fine. They seem to be getting away with it. What we see happening around us makes it hard for us to be confident. But, but we need to be honest with what we see because one option is not to be honest, to pretend that everything's okay. That pretend, to pretend and tell ourselves, no, no, everything's working out just like we thought it would. Everything's just great. And what we learn is that we're lying to ourselves and something will at some point happen that will sort of pop that false sense of confidence, that balloon filled with sort of lying to ourselves, that, that sense of bravado will disappear faster than a dozen donuts at men's breakfast, like just gone. So the first key to confidence is we got to be honest about the present, and let's be honest, it appears as if evil is winning. Here's key two. Be hopeful about the future. Though it looks like evil is winning, here's what God says. Evil will be punished and righteousness rewarded. And so here's what we've got to understand. The, the shortness of our lives and the limitations we have means that our view of life amounts to a single image in an entire movie. So... We, we see this one frozen frame on the screen of our lives and we try to extrapolate the entire plot based upon that one frame. And since, since we can't see the whole thing, here's what we've got to do. We've got to trust the script writer that he's already penned the final words. But every story has this point where everything seems to go wrong. In fact, if you've ever watched a Hallmark movie, they all had the same plot. And the same plot goes like this. Good things happen, and you just wait. When's the misunderstanding? When's the thing happening? In fact, that's not just Hallmark movies. It's all stories. At some point, something's going to happen, and all the good things seem to come crashing down, and it just seems hopeless. And we live in this moment. And even though when you're watching the Hallmark movie, you know it's going to all wrap up great. right? You're in this moment, and here we are. We're in the middle of Act 2 where it seems like the wrongdoers are getting away with it. And God promises, listen, I've written the final words. It's going to turn out how I say it's going to turn out. 
So do you remember the psalmist's observation? We just saw it. That the wicked seems like a healthy, fruitful tree. Well, God says, look again. Verse 2. For they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Or verse 36, the following verse. Then I passed by and I noticed he was gone. That tree that looked so strong and fruitful, well-rooted, it's going nowhere. He says, I walked by the next day and it was gone. I searched for it. I I just saw it here. Where is it? And it says it could not be found. Multiple times throughout the psalm, God assures us that the end of the wicked is death and judgment. The end of the righteous, for the righteous is life and flourishing. Verse 9, for evildoers will be destroyed. But those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. So the wicked may plot to harm the righteous. It says in verse 14, they'll draw their sword to pierce the righteous. And verse 15 says, the swords will enter their own heart. They'll string the bow to shoot an arrow at the poor and the marginalized. And it says, the bows will not only be broken. Verse 17, the arms that wield the bow will be broken. Verse 20, God compares the wicked to smoke that is blown away by the wind. As the psalm wraps up, we find one more contrast between the future of the wicked and the righteous. Look at verse 37. Watch the blameless and observe the upright, for the person of peace will have a future. But transgressors will all be eliminated. The future of the wicked will be destroyed. We don't see the end of the wicked. We don't see evil people on their deathbed. We see this brief moment when everything seems to be going well, and we assume that's how it will always go. But God assures us it won't. I mean, one of the themes that runs from the beginning of the Bible to the end is the certainty of judgment on sin. That God is just, he will punish sin. Those who think they can get away with sin, they cannot. I mean, we know this, each one of us individually. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, he will reap. You know in your own life times when you have sown sin and you have reaped the consequence of that sin. But for some reason, we look at someone else sowing sin and we think somehow they're not going to reap it. And God says, yes, Yes, they will. So friend, if you're not a Christian, then you're included with the evildoers and wicked of Psalm 37. Now, I don't say that to belittle you or to suggest that I or anyone in here are better than you. Christians are sinners. We looked at this in depth last week about our, all of our hearts being deformed. The only difference between a Christian and non-Christian is the Christian has received the faithful love of God through Jesus Christ. Our sin that's there has been forgiven. Our deformed hearts have slowly been renewed by the work of God in us. So if you've never turned from your sin, if you are violating the the boundaries of God's law, and you've never repented or turned from that, then I encourage you to pay very careful attention to the warnings in the psalm because they're written for you. But they're written, and you're hearing them now as an act of grace to invite you to come to God for forgiveness. The future is hopeful for us as Christians, not, not primarily because the wicked are going to be punished, but because we will be rewarded. And this reward isn't because of something we do which is great news because then something we do won't lose it. It's because God has poured out his favor on us through Jesus. Four times we find a promise repeated in this psalm. It says the righteous will inherit 
the land. Now, when David penned this psalm, he was thinking about a very specific place, a very specific region of land in the Middle East. But what's wonderful is Jesus takes the same promise and he actually broadens it. Jesus quotes from here in his most famous sermon, and he says, the meek, the humble, defined in the Bible as those who have humbled themselves, turned from their sin, and received God's grace. It says they will inherit the earth. Everything I've made, Jesus says, and I, I will remake, I will reshape, I will reform it, and I will give it to you to enjoy forever in my presence. This is yours, all yours. This is how the movie ends, he says, that my people inherit my world. When those first disciples were hiding in the upper room and it felt like evil had triumphed, they needed to remember the words of Jesus when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. His death on the cross was not the end of the story. The triumph of the wicked was short-lived. They may have won the battle, but they lost the war. Confidence that comes. Sometimes we have this. We have confidence in our lives. Sometimes it seems because our circumstances are good. Well, guess what? That will evaporate like morning dew. But confidence that comes from knowing the end of the story, this kind of confidence lasts even when circumstances are hard. So the key to living with quiet confidence is to begin with being honest about what we see right now and then to look with hope to the future. And here's the third key. Trust the Lord with today. Trust the Lord with today. Now, this is one of those Christian sentiments that's easy to agree with and not know what you're talking about, right? Like someone will come up to you and say, well, brother, well, sister, trust the Lord with today. And you'll go, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, what's that even mean? Especially when things are hard. Circumstances are difficult. So what, what does it look like to trust the Lord today? And I think that's where this psalm gets really, really helpful to us because it breaks trusting the Lord today down into really some very digestible pieces, okay? So let me give you just six ways quickly to trust the Lord with today. Here's the first way. Learn the delightfulness of God. Learn the delightfulness of God. So in verse 4, we're commanded to take delight in the Lord. Now, we've been going through Psalms, third summer, right? How many times have we found a command to take delight, to rejoice, like, in God? He means it. Psalm, verse 23 says, the wise man takes pleasure in God's way. Our relationship throughout the book of Psalms is described not in terms of duty, but in terms of delight. And I think this is an important distinction, especially as we talk about issues of trust and confidence, because it's really hard to trust a miserable person. Imagine someone gave you a restaurant recommendation and they did it very irritated. You should really go there. Do you want to go there? Or someone gives you a, here's a paint color, you should paint your house, and they do it while angry. Like, I don't want to be like that. I think I'll paint it a different color. You'll, you'll have a hard time trusting God, especially when circumstances are unfriendly, if you view God either as a drill sergeant or just a miserable old man. And neither of those pictures come from the Bible. The Bible reveals God is infinitely joyful. It says that pleasure sits at God's right hand like a puppy and he sends it out to play. I mean, God created laughter. I mean, who does that? Who said, this is a fun thing? Let me create this and give it to my people. Only someone who is delighted. 
One of the major challenges we face as Christians is a poor view of God. So remember year two reading this quote from Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, and it really struck me. It says, the Christian life is a lifelong shedding of tepid thoughts about God's goodness. So, so this is the Christian life, a lifelong shedding, getting rid of tepid, lukewarm, insufficient thoughts about how good God is. See, I don't believe God is that good. Even though I know what the Bible says, and even though I have experienced His grace time after time after time, I just, I still don't believe it. What I do is I project my own struggles and my own faults and my own failures on Him. And therefore, because I'm unconvinced of His goodness, I find trusting Him with today and and living with the settled confidence that he is for me, I find that really tough. So how can you and I learn that God is delightful? I want you to think about a time where you met a person, a conversation, and you walked away from that conversation, and you thought, man, I really enjoyed them. I'd like to do that again. They're delightful. I mean, what did it look like? Right? It started with spending some time together. You know, met for a meal, you met for coffee. I remember a decade and a half ago meeting Chris and Mindy Burnett, pizza, when all of our boys were super little, before they were at Redeemer, and leaving going two hours later, saying, eating a lot of pizza, and saying, man, they were delightful. Spent some time together. Talked. It's probably two-way, right? It wasn't just you talking. It wasn't just them talking. Taking interest in each other. Learning things about them. Finding out what they're like. I'm guessing they weren't conceited or cocky or arrogant or rude or mean or unkind. They were probably kind and gracious. And you left that conversation saying, I want to get to know them better. What if you did the same with God? What if you made it your goal the rest of this summer? Say, here's my goal. I want to learn God's delightfulness. I want to engage in conversation with him. I want to listen to him. I want to learn what he's like. That's the invitation of this psalm. Do you think that if you learned how delightful God is, that you would find it easier to trust him? Little Mercy Nelson asked her mom, Heather, why she's willing to leave North Carolina and move to the Balkans. Heather pointed her to Psalm 37, verse 4, and said, it's because she delights in God. The delightfulness of God will encourage you to trust Him even when your circumstances are not delightful. Here's a second way to trust God with today. Commit each day to Him. Commit each day to Him. So I want to give you two Latin phrases. I don't speak Latin, okay? I'm an American, so it means I speak one language, not that well. But, but I think these could be a helpful way to think about what it means to actually commit today to the Lord. So the first Latin phrase is, you've probably heard it, carpe diem. Carpe diem. It means seize the day. So you, it's like you get up out of bed in a sprint. You go run out of there. You grab the day. You, you wrestle the day to the ground like a rodeo star. And like you have you've seized the day. Here's the second phrase. Coram Deo in the presence of God. Live each day in the presence of God. Live each day before the face of God. So here, I want to read a verse from Psalm 37. I want to ask you, does this sound more like carpe diem, seize the day, or coram deo, in the presence of God? Verse 5. 
Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. See, this psalm does not encourage a self-confident seizing of the day, but a quiet assurance that if we live in the presence of God, we can be confident in his care for us. Don't seize the day, surrender the day. Surrender it to live according to God's will, not your own. See, when we get out of bed so often, we're focused on what we need to seize that day. Right? I, I've got a to-do list 37 pages long. I've got to seize some of it. I've got this meeting and I'm going to go and I'm going to seize it. I've got this thing I want to do. And we're, we're trying to seize all of these things that will make us happy and fulfilled. And here the psalmist is inviting us to surrender each day. What if we were to do this? What if at the beginning of the day we looked at our day's schedule and we just offered those things to the Lord? I'm going to go in a meeting, Lord. I offer this meeting to you. I've got this long to-do list. I can't get it all done. I'm going to offer it to you to do what you want me to do. I've got this conversation. I've got this meal. I've got this thought, this word, this moment. God, it's yours. Use it for your purposes. I think we get a picture of what might that, look, that might look like at the end of verse 3. So that phrase translated there, live securely, is, is, could be translated shepherd faithfulness. I know it's a little odd sounding, shepherd faithfulness. But, but I think what it's saying is that we should begin each day like a shepherd. So a shepherd gets up and he's, gonna, he's committed that day to caring for, to protecting, to helping his sheep grow healthier. Okay, but, but since you don't have sheep, what you're intentional about is your faithfulness to God. So no matter what else happens that day, you're going to tend to your faithfulness. That you'll do whatever it takes to protect your commitment to God and to help it grow stronger that day. A third way, don't take matters into your own hands. Don't take matters in your own hands. It's hard to be faithful when we think evildoers are getting away from it. When, we, when it seems to us like God must be busy scrolling Facebook because he's clearly missing some things that are happening. Why isn't he acting? Why isn't he paying attention? And then we think, well, I better deal with it. I, I got to... I gotta I gotta handle this, especially when someone is is hurting or harming or doing something wrong to us or someone we love. We need we're tempted to like we've gotta make things right. Verse seven, be silent before the Lord, wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out evil plans. Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated, it can only bring harm. So I don't know about you, but I'm rarely actually tempted to physically lash out at someone. I don't like confrontation either, right? And so like getting in someone's face and yelling, that's not something that, that, that's really tempting to me, but I am tempted to be agitated. And sometimes the agitation comes out by criticizing someone else in front of someone, probably not in front of them, but in front of someone else. But I would say it most often comes out by what I say inside my own head, by my shower thoughts. Right? This internal dialogue I have where I can yell and criticize, where I can curse and condemn those people for what they're doing. I can get really worked up when what I really need to do is shut up and listen to what God says. And my, and my shower thoughts, are, they're further encouraged by living in a society that is fueled by activism. Like we're told over and over how important it is for us to stand up for ourselves, make the world better, fix it, solve our problems, take care of it, be the hero. 
A friend described it as passive activism. We get really, really, really worked up about whatever we're told to get worked up about. This psalm is instructing us to do the opposite. It tells us to be actively passive, to work really, 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 really hard, to stop working really, really hard and trust the Lord. Now, the end goal here, don't misunderstand, it's not laziness, it's not apathy, but real, genuine, demonstrative faith. Trusting the Lord to win the battle and refusing to fight the enemy with his own weapons. I mean, think about the metaphors God uses for the Christian, a soldier, a farmer, an athlete, a craftsman. These aren't lazy people. They're not people who simply let go and let God, but they're people who trust God to lead them in the path, to give them instructions, to guide them, and all the way refusing to get angry or agitated by those who oppose what God is telling us to do. Now, often we take matters in our own hands because we think God is not moving fast enough. But a a call to faith isn't simply a call to trust God with the end results, but to trust God with every single detail in the middle. Apparently in George Mueller's Bible, there was a little notation made next to Psalm 37, 23. So in the King James Version, it reads, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And next to the word steps, Mueller had noted, stops. Both the steps and the stops. Both the clear path and the insurmountable obstacle are ordered by the Lord. They're in God's hand, so we refuse to take them into our own. Another way to trust God. Look to be generous. Look for ways to be generous. So think about it. If we believe our future's in our hands, then we'll not simply go out and seize the day, but we're going to seize and hoard any resources that help us do what we want to do, get done what we want to do, that make us happy or secure or prosperous. If we take our direction from non-Christians around us who seem to be getting ahead, then we will use all of our resources on ourselves or at least on our goals. But if we believe what God says, if we believe, in fact, that we will inherit the earth, then we can live with a type of open-handed generosity that sets us in contrast with those who don't know Jesus. Because we are going to inherit the earth, brothers and sisters, we don't have to be stingy now. There should be an obvious difference between how we as Christians use our money and how non-Christians use theirs. I I think non-Christians generally use their resources consistent with their values. Right, so, so what do they value? They value sort of their own pleasure, their own security, their own way, and they use their resources consistent to get that. The question is, is do we use our resources consistent with our values? Verse 21 says, the wicked person borrows and does not repay. See, consistent with his values but the righteous one is gracious and giving. Be generous. Trust God to take care of you. Believe the gospel that Jesus who was rich became poor so that we who are poor would be rich. Now that's not talking about any 
dollar figure in your account. It's talking about the earth is yours and all the riches that come from Jesus Christ will be poured out on us for all of eternity. And because of that, verse 26 says we can be always generous, always lending, and we can teach our children to be a blessing to others with with their generosity. Here's the fifth way to trust God. Fill your mind and mouth with Scripture. Fill your mind and mouth with Scripture. Verse 30. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. His tongue speaks what is just. The instruction of his God is in his heart. His steps do not falter. So faith comes from knowing God. It comes from knowing his character and promises. And we get to know him by listening to his word. Like, you know this is true. So I'm not going to spend time trying to convince you. I just want to offer you a practical suggestion. Build God's word into your daily routines. Kay Sandberg uses her daily walk around the neighborhood to memorize scripture. And as she passes by neighbors' houses, she uses that scripture as a prompt to pray by name for those neighbors. Josh Woosley was telling about his dad and how his dad has a lot of time in the car each day. He does a lot of driving for his job. And so he listens to the whole Bible. Now, he does it on double speed. Apparently, you can still tell what it's saying. But he listens to the Bible each month before he'll listen to the radio or to any audiobooks. Did you realize you can listen to the entire New Testament, normal speed, not even double speed, on normal speed every month if you just give it 30 minutes a day? 30 minutes a day, turning on an audio reading of the New Testament, you'll listen to it in a month. Like, that's all it takes. So build God's Word into your daily routines. Now, I know, I know what we think. We don't have time to do this. And I know some people are in some busy seasons of life. I, I think of Ian and Kinsey, who just had a baby. Tom and Jane, who are busy helping with grandkids and traveling a lot. And, and life gets busy, but we have enough time to do the things we need to do. God gives us that. And so if we understand we need his word, we can find time. You will not learn to trust the Lord with each day apart from feasting on his word. The marathon runner doesn't fast for a week before the big race because he knows he'll run out of strength by the end. Are you running out of strength? Well, check your diet. What is it you're feasting on? Is it the word of God? Here's the last way to trust God with today. Remember God's promise to keep you. Remember God's promise to keep you. So at the end of the day, your faith will only be strong as the foundation it rests on. To sustain you when the world makes no sense, when life is out of control, when evil seems to be getting ahead, and you wonder if it's really worth it to follow Christ, you need faith that rests on the promises of God. He will sustain you. Just listen to how often the psalmist repeats this. Because he knows that confident living comes from a settled assurance that God will never forsake us. Verse 18. The Lord watches over the blameless all their days. And their inheritance will last forever. Verse 23, a person's steps are established by the Lord. He takes pleasure in his way. Though he falls, he will not be overwhelmed because the Lord supports him with his hand. Verse 39, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Their refuge in a time of distress. The Lord helps and delivers them. He will deliver them from the wicked and will save them because they take refuge in him. What sustained Anthony during his battle with cancer? Or Richard as his health was failing? Or Diane as she watched Parkinson's take her husband? 
Jason and Demi as the judge kept ruling unjustly. Alan, when he lost his job unexpectedly. God sustained them, just as he promised to. And he will sustain you. He will not fail you. He will keep you. When you fear your faith will fail, we sing it, right? Who will hold you fast? Christ will. Don't forget this. And don't put yourself in a position where forgetting becomes possible. Okay, don't put yourself in a position where forgetting these promises becomes possible, which means show up on Sundays and hear your brothers and sisters sing to you about God's faithfulness. Recite together with them the assurance of grace. Eat the bread, drink the cup of union with Christ. Remind someone else of God's grace with your words or simply by your mere presence here. There is no better way to remember the promises of God than to hear them and see them each week. The term con man is shorthand for confidence man. Right? It describes a person who lulls you into trusting him, who lulls you or manipulates you into putting your confidence in him before he takes advantage of you, right? A con man. So imagine after the service on the lobby, this were to happen. I, I really hope it doesn't. Never has before, but I, let's imagine. You're on the lobby and some guy comes up to you and he introduces himself. Hi, I'm Billy. I'm a con man. He hands you his resume and he says, here are all the times I hurt people by taking advantage of them. And then he says, but, puts on his biggest smile, you can trust me. Would you? Right, I hope not. That'd be stupid. It's what we do every time we put our confidence in ourselves. Self-confidence is our internal con man. You, you can't trust yourself. You shouldn't trust yourself. How many times has trusting yourself hurt you or hurt someone else? But see, what happens is when times are tough, when it appears as if evil is winning, when God is silent, we turn inward and we hear the internal con man whisper to us, we can do it. We got it. If we cannot trust ourselves, who can we trust? Well, we could trust the one who sits on the throne. We could trust the one who died in our place so that we could live in his. We could trust the one who daily pours out his grace on his people. Do you trust Jesus? Are you living with quiet confidence in his grace? Is that confidence affecting how you think and how you feel and how you act and how you talk to others. Pray with me. Father, help us to live with the confidence that comes from Christ, not in ourselves. There are some in here who can easily fall into self-confidence, just as there are many in here who just are always in self-doubt. Some who live with a type of sort of internal boldness or arrogance, and others who are just fearful and anxious and fretful and Lord, in both of those, both those situations, we need you. We need to be confident in you. So help us. Help us to be confident in your grace. 
Help us to trust your care for us. Help us to delight in you, to be generous. Lord, we offer ourselves to you today. We ask for you to work in and through us. We do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.